From FasterMind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. Another concept is to actually shut up and listen. It's really easy once somebody says something or asks you a question in return to just kind of ramble on. And this is something that I think a lot of people struggle with just in life too, is not knowing when to stop talking and trying to figure out how can you say the same thing in 30 seconds versus a minute. The more you can do that and and respect people's time, the better. One of my favorite shows to watch with my family is Shark Tank. And the reason we love it is we get to watch these people put really cool ideas out into the world. And whether it's my kids or my wife or myself, we all tend to look at each other and say, wow, if they did that, maybe we could do that. And I know that's been the experience of many of you guys who are listening. But sometimes I wonder, what would it be like to get not just an opportunity to pitch an investor, but to actually get educated by the investor at the same time? Well, my guest today is Josh Muccio, and Josh runs an amazing podcast called ThePitch.fm, and he's run it for the past year and a half. It's extraordinary. They've generated over $100,000 in revenue as a podcast, which is extraordinary in and of itself, three quarters of a million downloads with very few episodes, relatively speaking. One of their companies actually went on to raise like 14 or $15 million after their pitch, and uh, in this next season, season two that's coming, they have 12 companies where they're actually pitching and people are deciding just like on Shark Tank whether or not they're going to be funded but without all the long edits like this is an extraordinary moment that you get to watch the intrigue and the drama and see what goes into actually getting funded now the reason I wanted to have Josh on the show is I thought wouldn't it be cool if we as freelancers and owners and entrepreneurs could get the benefit of what it would be like to be on that show and ask ourselves how could we pitch better what would it take for us to put ourselves in a position to create maximum impact where people would want to invest in us as customers or who knows maybe Maybe invest in us beyond that. At the end of the show, though, where I'm confident you'll land with, is with a sense of clarity and hope as to how you can better present what you're bringing to the world in a way that more people will buy into. Josh Michio, welcome to Converge. Great to be here, Dane. Thank you. Josh, I am so pleased that you're here for a number of reasons. One is I got picked by you. You you found me in the sea that is the internet. And we started, I, really, I got this kind of interesting email from this really cool person who runs this really cool podcast. And he wanted to feature our little effort here at Converge. And first of all, thank you for that. That was a massive hit for us. And it's because you have such a massive audience and extraordinary following around this phenomenon called the Pitch.fm. And it's kind of like a podcaster's dream for like Shark Tank. And it's so funny. Shark Tank is one of those shows that my whole family, we watch it like religiously. It's the one thing we rally around as a family. It's so funny that and the Goldbergs. But we do this in this anticipation of like watching what does it take for a company to get made? And you get to do this with this extraordinary show. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit of how it is that you came up with the idea for the pitch, what the pitch is, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Dane. Yeah, we loved featuring your show because it was just like, okay, we're not going to just do the traditional business beat on a self-made man or entrepreneurship. We're going to focus on creatives and how 
I just I love the premise for the show. It was so unique to me that like we had to include it in our list of the best podcasts for founders and entrepreneurs. So the pitch podcast, I was doing another podcast at the time and somebody listened to the show and they were an investor that had thought in their head, hey, it was a guy named Sheil. He had thought, wow, I want to start a podcast like the TV show Shark Tank and make it more like real life and make it less fake. Because there's some stuff I'm, I'm sure you'd agree about Shark Tank that's just not so true to real life. You know, it, it makes for good TV, but but maybe you want to know what the true story is. And so he thought... Real quick uh, interjection here. So I actually spoke at an event with Barbara Corcoran and got to talk to her directly about this very dynamic that you're describing. And it's true. Like, really? Oh, yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's this tension of reality television, of... It's not, there's enough of reality in it to call it reality TV, but they still have to have a cast of characters. They still have to have a beginning, a middle, and end. They have to create tension and drama. Otherwise, it's not interesting enough for people to pay attention to. And she talked about the reality of what people are in the front of the screen versus what they are actually in real life. And it was fascinating to get to know from her seat what she thought of the characters. But you're totally right. And that really is different than my experience of what you guys do. But talk more about that distinction. Well, I mean, specifically, they'll, you know, on a show... They kind of gloss over the details at times, and they'll they'll skip from like, "Hey, I'm Company A building Widget B, and we need this much money." To basically the investor complaining about whatever they like or don't like about the company, or you know, basically tearing them a new one, and then cut to commercial break. When we're back, we're going to find out whether Barbara goes in on this or not. And it's like, <laughs> I mean, it's truly entertaining, right? But at the same time, what happened between that jump from here's the product, here's what we're building, to the very end where they're negotiating? Well, it was probably 30 to 45 minutes where they talk about the product. And most of it was really, really boring. But somewhere in there would have been something that would, you know, that could help somebody in their business or like truly give the, the, the viewer an understanding of what it's like to build a business and what uniquely made this founder successful or, or unsuccessful, you know? And so you're basically getting, you know, in Shark Tank, the, the tip of the iceberg and uh, usually just the most dramatic moments that serve the, the TV show best. And that's probably not what serves entrepreneurs best. And so our show, we're serving entrepreneurs first. But there's actually, turns out, quite a bit of suspense and drama in a pitch to investors anyway. So that that's our beat on it. Well, there's such a, a reward at the end, and that's true. But I, I, I think... What you're describing, I think, is a more ambitious exercise. Number one, you don't have to deal with the video piece of it, which is on some level helpful. But the other side is it does sound like you're doing more than just telling a dramatic story about whether somebody gets picked or not. It's really a there's an educational element to it where if I'm watching and learning, I can pull pieces out in contrast with, say, you know, what families do watching Shark Tank is they're all watching. They get to the commercial break. They all hit pause and say, is he going to get funded? Is he not? Who, who's who's going to do the deal? Oh, I think they should go with so-and-so or such and such. But one of the things that I really appreciate is you actually fill in the whole story because the quarterback on Monday morning, it, that's kind of what Shark Tank can feel like. It's like, I'm, I'm having an opinion. I might even feel authoritative in it, but I really have no idea what went into it. And where that became really evident to me was getting to know friends who've actually pitched on Shark Tank and have gone through the drill, whether they made TV or not, or got funded or not. And every one of them, to a T, all say, oh, but there's so much more to the story. Like, you don't know what actually led to that little tiny clip that you kind of witnessed online or on television. And I feel like you fill in so many of those gaps, and it becomes certainly entertaining. But more than that, it's also highly educational. 
Absolutely, Dane. I love how you're breaking this down. This is good. I'm like getting more excited about my own show as I talk to you about this. So this is good because I've got a lot of work to do on season two, like getting that one prepared right now. Well, season two is pretty exciting. In fact, you were very generous to share some numbers and I can't wait that we're going to share some of those right now. But, you know, in your first year as a podcaster, First of all, to be a podcaster and make money at all is extraordinary. If your name is <laughs> so many poor podcasters, out it's there. extraordinary. I mean, unless you're Alex Bloomberg at Gimlet, it's it's just a big deal to do that. And you've done that in the six figure range, and it's extraordinary that you pulled that off in such a short period of time. You've only been around a year and a half. All of the downloads, I think you told me it's something like seven hundred fifty thousand downloads with very few episodes, which is again extraordinary. Some people game the podcast world by putting a whole a flood of you know shows out there, and then and there are no rebroadcasts either. We didn't do any of that. Right. right. Yeah, that's right. Well, wait till you need a vacation. But And then on top of that, you know, these big success stories. But the cool deal, talk a little bit about season two and the 12 companies that came on and, and what the results were in real time when you were actually doing the pitch. So leading up to season two, we kind of had to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're going to fix what we don't like about the show. We're going to we're gonna level this thing up, right? And so one of the most aggravating things about season one, if you listen to our first 50 episodes uh, approximately, is there's no investment actually happening on the show. It's like, hey, here's what I'm building. And then the investors provide commentary, their thoughts. And it's like, yeah, it sounds interesting. I'll probably follow up with the person. And it's just the most unsatisfying thing from a listener's perspective when you're expecting to hear that yes or no, or here's how much I'm in and, and why and what, what not. So we decided, all right, let's clear the slate. Let's find five investors who are willing to commit in one hour. And that that's a really hard thing to find. And it, it literally took us that year of like building our network and finding people and literally one investor saying, hey, why don't you make the show more like Shark Tank? And I said, well, why don't you be one of the investors willing to invest in an hour? And we will. And he said yes. And he helped us find other panelists. This is all leading up to the recording event we did last October 2016 in San Francisco. And we had 12 companies that came in and they pitched these five investors. And I remember emailing the investors beforehand. And like you could tell they were like, yes, I'm going to do this thing. But I have no idea how good these companies are going to be. Like, there's just, it's just the apprehension of like the first time you're doing something. And they all said, you know, we're probably going to cut some small checks. We're thinking like 25, 30, maybe 50 K, but like, it's going to, it's going to be small time. And I'm like, that's great. Cause right now our show has nothing being invested. Well, what actually happened when we got in the room and the companies that I was luckily able to find through our network and bring on the show was, was totally different. They ended up investing $1.5 million or committing to invest on that show, $1.5 million th- throughout that season. Wait, so wait, wait, episodes- in, in, re- in real time. Like at as as it's going on a podcast, people got funded for one point five million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> that's what happened. Well, it's going to happen for for listeners, but yeah, it already happened. So, oh my gosh. Well, uh, well, that's pretty exciting, man. And and on top of that, I mean, that's just when I think about the impact. If I was if I was pitching, like that, that's just extraordinary. And those are numbers that are competitive with Shark Tank. I mean, that's definitely in that kind of space. But to do it on this medium, that's extraordinary. I cannot wait for season two. When, I'll ask this again at the end of the show, but when is season two launching? Starts January 11th. So I have no idea when this is going live, but it might be really soon or it might have just happened. <laughs> uh, who knows? No, we'll get it up. Just we'll get it up in time. In fact, 
Yeah, we'll, we'll for sure, because I want to make sure people have a chance to catch it in real time. But that's awesome. So, so the reason, Josh, this is all awesome, but the reason I wanted to have you on was, you know, my audience are folks that are, they're creatives, they're makers, they're people who want to make a buck from what they make. Sometimes they're owners, sometimes they're freelancers, sometimes they work for somebody else, but they're really clear that whatever they're making, they want to increase its value. And one of the things I've been impressed with in listening to the pitch has been how it, it, people get self-reflective, like they're they're watching or listening to rather someone describe a cool app or a cool product or cool whatever. And if they're like me, I'm thinking through like, okay, that's interesting, but how does that apply directly to what I'm making? And and what can I learn? Like, how could I improve the value of what I'm creating? So we have this thing called Faster Mind, where we do this podcast and we also do this event and we create these online products. And I'm thinking like, okay, if I was pitching on the pitch. What would investors be asking me? How could I make this better? So I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have you talk through a little bit from the perspective of you know service providers and, and all these freelancers and folks that are listening in, if you were sitting down and having coffee and wanting them to, in a sense, pitch you to give you their elevator pitch on the value they're bringing to the table, can you walk us through the kind of conversation you'd want to have with them to get to a place of increasing their value to the, as much as they could pull off? Yeah, so I guess we can draw some parallels here. So in a pitch, it's probably you know it, it starts with like, "Hey, we're XYZ company, and here's our one sentence of what we build," and that's pretty critical. Like that's a good way way to start. And I think for some someone who's a creative, you're selling yourself, and so you you almost have to come up with like the one liner of like what makes you so special. So I don't know if we want to try to run through this exercise with like an example business. Can we, let's just do it. You know, I come from a photography background and we'll maybe do two of them. So we'll take a photographer and we'll take- Wedding planner? Uh, sure, an event planner. That sounds great. That's easy. So I think in both contexts, it's pretty similar. They're service-based professionals. But in the it's funny, you and I, before the show started, we talked a little bit about our, our interactions with our common colleague, Seth Godin. And he's not common. He's uncommon, but common to us. Because when, when he was on the show, we talked a little bit about about some of these dynamics too, around how would a wedding photographer stick out in a crowd when everyone has a camera in their pocket? So I'm not asking you to solve that for all photographers everywhere on the planet. What I am asking you though, is what are the questions that person should be considering if they want to create that uniqueness? Well, I think you you know that you're selling, you're selling more than obviously photos. So let's assume we already understand that principle, but then you have to communicate to that person upfront from like, because I mean, really, the pitch is like that first interaction. So, like, we'll we'll draw a parallel from from there. It's that first phone call you either get from them, or maybe you're making cold sales calls. Probably not. Probably getting phone calls from people, and like, uh, hey, this is Dane Sanders Photography or whatever the name is, and like your next line of like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, like m- making. Uh, I'm trying to come up with something that's not stupid. <laughs> well, recording. okay, so what, one line, I, I'm retired, so it's fine. But way back in the day, one of the lines that I started with was, choose your photographer with 50 years in mind. So like the idea was, I was selling them in the idea that this is not just a short-term cash flow decision for your wedding and a line item. When the invitations are thrown away and the food's digested and you know, you've moved on, like what are, what are you going to have? You're going to have your, you know, your spouse a ring and some photos to show that it happened. So that was kind of, there's one of several, but that was kind of one come from. 
Yeah, some decisions don't last very long. Others last a lifetime. That's right. And your photographer is one of them. That's right. So from that perspective, when you make that first impression, what I'm hearing is oh, like direct the conversation in a very focused way around the thing you want them to pay attention to on the front end. Is that accurate? Absolutely. I mean, you got to think like if we talk in service industry, like the most basic people do this at scale, like Chick-fil-A, for example, is like my pleasure. And they say that all the time to the point where it's not effective anymore. So like almost like that type of thing where like service in any service industry, that service is your brand. Your product isn't your brand. It's, it's your service. So how can you, in the language you use, like right off the bat, do something that's so unique that like you're sticking out from all the other people. Cause you have to assume that like they're going down the list, you know, it used to be the, the phone book list, you know, the yellow pages. Now it's, you know, Google results list. And so you've got that phone call and like how you introduce yourself is key. The other thing that people miss all the time that is like probably the, one of the easiest things you can do is pick up the phone being already optimistic and like happy. And instead of thinking about, so like you've got the content of what you're saying, you know, you know, choose your photographer with 50 years in mind, for example, but like how you say it says way more than, than what you're actually saying. So when you pick up the phone, you have to somehow sound comfortable, relaxed, yet also happy and, and finding the medium there where you're not too over eager, but it's honestly like people practice their pitch to get on stage, but yet people don't practice how they'll answer the phone. They don't like have a routine there and there should be a routine where like no matter how crappy you're feeling or like even if you have an upset client right, right, right now because something went wrong, like you have, to, you have to shut that off and you have to get in the mode of like, all right, here's, here's new business and let's, let's be the best version of myself. What I, what I, so I don't know how helpful that oh, is. Oh, it's but. hugely helpful because what you're framing up is, you know, whether you're on the pitch or you're not, we're pitching every day all the time in every aspect of our work. So I was just on the phone with a client of mine who runs this incredible event planning business down in Dallas. And we were talking about how she goes about the process of presenting to the client on the front end. And we were talking specifically about setting the context, like where do they meet? How do they meet? What's the experience? Like if you're trying to trigger things like authority and confidence, how do you do that in a way that is validated and triggers, especially if you're selling a sophisticated product to an unsophisticated audience, they don't know what they're looking for triggers that you're legit, that you're in the right position, that they're picking the right folks. So like I would say to her things like, make sure that you know all like the major, if you're meeting at a restaurant, the major D knows who you are, like that they're, you're on the first name basis with the wait staff that ah, yeah. like that, that those kinds of pieces can, they give these subtle triggers for people. But but in a sense, what I'm hearing you say is actually further than that. It's not just kind of setting a context, but really owning that your job on the front end is to have you stand out, have you connote and trigger these ideas and do it in a way that you're comfortable in your own skin. And you're not just kind of saying the right words because you pulled some, you know, a swipe file off the internet. You're, you're, you're doing it. Like, I, it's funny. I, back in the day, I actually, that, that tagline I just described, there was another company who'll go nameless in up in Northern California who literally ripped the tagline, the website, everything off entirely. They had a legitimate photo business, but they made verbatim everything that they had done. And they were puppeting what I had created. And it was such a fun conversation to call them up and just say, like, you're a cover band, take it down. Like, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> this is going to create a lot of confusion. And it was, I, I could say it with a th- I could say with authority because it really was mine. Like it wasn't like it was. Uh, how did it, how did that go? Did they take it? Down? Oh, instantly, like fifteen minutes later, 
it was so fascinating. But but what what I'm more struck by? How did you approach that? Oh man, I'm I'm super curious about that interaction. <laughs> like, because I can just see that being super combative. Oh no no, no it was su- you... super neutral, just a conversation. But honestly, it's funny. I kind of wish a client had listened in because it it speaks to the very things you're describing. Because when people are coming from an actual place of authority or confidence. Because it it was mine. Like, I built it first. There was no question about it. Like, they had ripped it off. It was obvious that they had. They just kind of wilted. They didn't try to fight anything. Or they just went, oh, yeah, yeah, you caught us. (laughs) Our bad. But I, I guess distinct from that little moment, what I'm trying to emphasize is what you're talking about, which is if you don't lead on the front end, you're not leading. Like, you're not there's there's nothing to go follow. And if there's nothing to follow, you're just going to be lost in the crowd. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. So so I really like to frame kind of the next interaction around around a question as quickly as possible or, or a series of questions. But you, again, this is about like, find a way to ask the questions more unique. So like, what, what would be the first question you would ask someone if you're a photographer? Like, I don't know, like, if it's a wedding photographer, like how often are you, um, are we talking event planner or wedding photographer? Which example? Let's focus here? on wedding photographer. And, and I think the first question that I'd want to ask when I met with somebody is just kind of what are they looking for? What do they hope? How much do they value photography or what? Do they want to be kind of the center focus or do they want to be just kind of unaware that the camera's being like taking their picture the whole time? Those kinds of questions come to mind. Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a good way as opposed to like, okay, what's your budget? You know, getting to almost as if um, because assuming it's not a transaction, I want it to be a value add. Yeah, most of our listeners are going to be, you know, owner operators. So like, they're probably the ones picking up the phone. Uh, It's not a secretary, for example. And so I think you got to do the things that say like, I'm an owner operator. And like, I'm going to be the one who's on the line here to make sure this, you have the best, you know, photography experience ever at at your wedding And, and things like that, where you're talking about the experience and like, what are they looking for specifically? These are the right things that you you have to be doing. So, and then another concept that is really hard for people to do is to actually shut up and listen. It's really easy once, you know, somebody says something or asks you a question in return to just kind of ramble on. And this is something that I think a lot of people struggle with just in life too, is not knowing when to, to stop talking and trying to figure out how can you say the same thing in 30 seconds versus a minute. And the more you can do that and, and respect people's time, the better. I am such a big believer in this. Um, well, it, it's interesting too because it it really it, it harkens back to like how to win friends and influence people is to you know start with the customer's favorite topic is going to be themselves, whether they know it or not. It's not about narcissism or being overly self focused. It's just that's what's pri- primary in their mind. That's what they're thinking about. They want to make a great decision. So to lead, like you say, with to let them know what the what is the one idea I want to have kind of baked in their mind right out of the gate and then ask them a question so they can start talking about what they seem to care about and then not interrupt them, <laughs> uh, create space for them to actually air that stuff out and sort through it. That process can be easy. If I'm only concerned about me selling my goods, I might skip those parts yet. That's precisely what like those moments when I'm shutting up and listening, it sounds like it's when they're actually talking themselves into the right decision. Does that sound accurate? It does. And, and there's something you're doing right right now. Like you're you're summarizing the concept of what we're talking about and you're talking you're saying it back to me. It, this is called active listening. I think there's another couple of terms that people use. Others people would just call it being a good listener. But you can really utilize this. If after somebody starts telling you the vision for their wedding, 
you can more concisely say it back almost, to them. Almost like they're telling you the answer. <laughs> like the the reason you shut up and listen is so that when you listen, you can actually give them back what they say they want and the likelihood of them saying yes goes up. Absolutely. And and when you finish saying something, part of the reason that you ramble is you're like, Are, do they understand what I'm saying? Do, do you think they got it? Or should I, should I continue saying what I already said to make sure they got it? And so when you repeat something back to them and it's like, Am I hearing you right? Like, is that is that what you're looking for? And they say, yes. Like, all of a sudden, they're like, all right, this person gets me. They understand what I need. They understand what I want. And that's half the battle, right? Is like so many errors in customer interactions or, you know, in, in business are just miscommunication or like your words meaning something different than your customer's words. And there's this disconnect that you don't find out until later. And then, you know, you can have all these issues. So, oh, 100%. Well, I, I, what, again, I... I don't want to be to overstate this. We had a, a fantastic guest on the show a few times named Tara Gentili, and she talks a lot about being customer-centric, problem-centric, as opposed to product-centric, solution-centric, where I'm talking about things that they don't care about yet. And this is the critical preamble to get to the place where they do care about it. And it starts with them being free. So so once they've done that, you've listened, how do you get to a place where you you are talking about what you're offering in a way that will land well for them? I think this is another thing you just see all the time. And in the tech world, which is kind of where I'm drawing the the parallel here, people like to talk about the features of their product and what the product actually does, which is fine. But a better way to phrase that is to not talk about features, but instead talk about what those features allow you to do or what it allows you to accomplish or what it gets you to in life. So let's go ahead and take wedding photography, for example. So the the how you're going to do it might be the tools you're using. You know, you have a, uh, oh man, this is going to sound horrible because I'm, I'm not a photographer. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I have this amazing telephoto lens. This is so bad for your audience because I know there's a lot of photographers listening. No, um, but you're, no, no, but you're right. Like, it's funny because there actually are websites out there that will say, these are the questions you need to ask to make sure they're legitimate. Like, what kind of gear do they have? Do they have insurance? Have they ever done an event with how many people? Like, all these kinds of things that if they're in a place of that level of insecurity, that they're not sure you're legitimate enough, you're in a, you're in a bad conversation. Like, you've not set this up very well. And I think you're right that if if people are just talking about what I'm going to go do, they don't care about what I'm going to do. They're going to care about the benefit they're going to get from what I do. You know, it's the it's the whole people don't buy a they don't buy a drill, they buy a hole. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and, but but it's interesting cuz that's how does one like when in all of your experiences with these like the best the best on the pitch who presented to you, what is what's an example of someone talking about the benefit not just the feature? That's a good question. So a, a recent one, there's one uh, called Baja Board, and it's essentially a skateboard with like pretty large tires on it. And it's an electric skateboard, mind you, and like, some serious shocks on it. So it's made so that you can take your, your electric skateboard off-roading and like almost take it like a four-wheeler or a dirt bike and that sort of thing, and, and even take it off of small jumps. And so I, I think they did pretty good on the episode, if I remember correctly, even though the investors tend to kind of derail them and like, okay, so tell me about the, the details of the product and blah, blah, blah. But what they're really selling here is the recreation aspect. You know, for a customer, their ideal customer, it's the people that, that like to go outdoors, that maybe like to go camping or like, or, you know, have four-wheelers and things like that, they aren't marketing to your average Joe that has an electric skateboard and they, they use it to commute to work. This is a totally different market. 
And so for them, they're selling that adventure. <laughs> like they're selling the outdoors lifestyle. And, you know, really, if we want to make it very basic, they're selling something that allows you to skateboard off-road. That's what they're selling. They can't sell a skateboard with monster truck tires and really sweet shocks and like a super powerful motor. Like that's what it is. But that's that's not the benefit, right? Yeah, what you're reminding me of is like some of the you know the Uber brands like Patagonia, like you know they're selling, they they're clearly selling a a vision of like I'm never going to climb Kilimanjaro, but when I look at people in their tech gear doing those crazy things, I'm like that's just cool. Like maybe if I wear that tech gear, it'll feel like I what they're feeling like, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I, I love that. I, I, the one piece that I'm really curious because I, I you read this great article on Forbes magazine that's articulating some of these pieces, and I'm really interested in this last bit. I think this is a, the part that I, especially the service professionals I talk with, and myself included, like it can be one of the hardest pieces to get after, and it's it has to do with confidence. So talk a little bit about that. So there's so many things that that feed into confidence, and I and I don't feel that I've fully fleshed this idea out enough. I, you know, it could be its own blog post on Forbes. You know, and you know how leveling up your confidence can you know make you your next six figures or something like that, some clickbaity title like that. But you know, I I think there's some deep stuff in here in confidence because it doesn't just go from like it's not just confidence in your work, it's confidence in yourself and, and your ability to to perform. It's just it's interesting because you find that the people that are most confident are the people that have done it the longest and have the most experience. So, so usually experience comes with confidence. And before that, you know, you hear the whole fake it till you make it. And sometimes people can fall on the, the wrong side of that. And they're faking it so much to the point where like they're coming across inauthentic and people can tell, I think cockiness is actually inauthentic confidence. So if you're truly confident and you can back up why you're confident, you know, it's it's not fluff, then I think people, they feel it's confidence and they, they feel good about that, that edge you've got. But if you can't back it up, there's something about, I don't know what it is that, that you put off, but it just rubs people the, the wrong way. And so I think a really important thing you can do, and people rarely stop and do this, is if you've doing, been doing this for six months, for example, or, or even for a year, which is relatively a short period of time in someone's career, stop, take stock in what you've done, and actually sit down and talk with your past customers, uh, even the ones that weren't that great. And you'll find that even the ones that had bad experiences, they did have one some good experience with you, right? And so if you really take the time to understand how your past customers feel about you as a person, that can really build your confidence up. For me, you know, I, I learned this from my dad. He was the kind of guy, he used to, he used to be a, a bodybuilder, not, not a very serious one, but, but there was a period in time where he was, he was really lifting weights a lot. And he used to put you know, his head on Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. He used to cut out you know, pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, <laughs> magazine and like, post it on the mirror. And like do all this inspirational stuff. And like I grew up thinking like that is so dumb, Dad. Dude, like you're such a retard. And so now here I am, and I'm starting to do the same things. Not not with bodybuilding <laughs> by any means, but putting the the things around me to kind of build up my confidence, so that every day I'm treating the people that I, I'm working with with the they're getting the best, most confident version of myself because that's going to really like ultimately that's going to put them at ease when they have confidence in you, it's going to increase the chance of, of you having an, another success story that can build on your confidence. So yeah, I, I have things, you know, 
right behind my computer right now to build me up that, you know, I can use to kind of get excited every day, even when I'm not necessarily feeling it. And I think you could do that with reviews. You could do that with past customer reviews, for example, if you're looking for something to hang up and be inspired by. Well, I love that on several levels because number one, I think the biggest picture, what I'm hearing you describe when it comes to confidence is there probably aren't a lot of shortcuts to confidence. Like there are ways to reinforce it and move steadily toward it and move steadily away from it. But what you're really describing is being comfortable in your own skin and having reps at being in your own skin sure does help, right? And I think about that, like one unfair advantage I had when I got into public speaking was I taught for years, years and years in a classroom. And those kinds of reps put you in a position where it was really interesting. Like in the photo space, there'd be these amazing photographers, like way better skilled photographers than me, who would be way worse speakers than me. And people would perceive me higher than them (laughs) because I was more comfortable in my skin. It wasn't special. It was just comfort. And that came because I had thousands and thousands of hours of reps. And I think that can be hard news to hear for folks who haven't had those reps yet if they're wanting a shortcut. But to be the genuine article, to be confident, it just in, in my mind, it's just like, well, how do I put myself in a position where I'm getting those reps as quickly and as often as possible? And even the way you're describing, like putting mantras up or kind of sayings or truths that are of you that are true, whether or not you've you're reminded of them or you're in a good mood on that particular day, just to dis- in a disciplined way, remind yourself of the reality that, of what you are in your skin when you're at your best. That's a kind of rep. That's a kind of way to practice. And a lot of folks can do that on their own time, anytime, yet they don't. And I think you're brilliant to do it. And probably one of the reasons why you're in such a extraordinary position, it, it had to have been intimidating to start the, the pitch and start talking with all these entrepreneurs and investors from the beginning. I'm guessing, is that true? It was, and, and particularly the tech community. I don't live in, out in San Francisco. So I'm kind of a, le- it's, it's wild because I've built this network out in San Francisco and, and a lot of people that find my podcast and find me assume that I'm out there because of what I've built, which is kind of exciting. But yeah, I remember in the beginning, it, it was really, I was, I was fairly insecure about what I was doing. I didn't let it stop me. And I also couldn't entirely hide my insecurities. I'm sure if I were to go back and listen to those episodes, I would think, wow, you know, the way I said that little bit just shows how, uh, how little I knew or, or, you know, it showed how green I was. And I, I don't think that there's like a, a real set of instruction for how to cut down on that. I mean, to be truly honest, the whole reason it was possible that I break into this space and, and build a tech network and, and even do this thing was because of my co-founder, Sheil, who was in the mix and who who had the network and was able to kind of get this thing off the ground with me. I was essentially the guy providing the expertise on the podcasting side, on the production side, on the, you know, adding music and scoring the episode and just the real grunt work behind it. But he was the investor who had the network and had the startups approaching him and, and fellow investors to come on the show. And so I really couldn't have done it without him. And yeah, I can only take so much credit. So as I'm hearing you describe this this process of narrowing down your idea to one sentence and asking the question to engage your audience or the people that you're pitching or the person that you're pitching that's right in front of you, and then creating space for them to respond and not speaking into that, but just listening really carefully to what they're having to say, because they're giving you the, the keys to the kingdom if you're willing to pay attention. And then to when you finally do start sharing that you're 
you're really talking about the benefit they're going to get, not just the features. And to do that in a in a way where you're comfortable and confident in your own skin, even if that's modest on the front end, but to grow into your skin over time and to practice it every chance you can, if that's all the backdrop, and as you see more and more sophisticated people bringing more really exciting ideas to market, I'm just wondering as a final question, if you could just, what's your sense of, of entrepreneurship, like the state of entrepreneurship right now? right now like there's because of the the pitches of the world and the shark tanks of the world it seems like there's a sense which everyone has access and everyone can do something and yet there's another part to it that it's never been kind of harder to break through the noise and have people pay attention to what you're creating because everyone gets to play so i'm just curious do you you have any thoughts on uh, as a parting thought on what is the state and where do you see entrepreneurship going in the days to come i think it's interesting because with technology we have more reach than ever, right? And so I think this is has some cues to the way we also feel more connected to the world as far as like, you know, when bad news comes out or there's an earthquake or whatever, like instantly, you know, the whole world is connected. I Like when, when the attacks on Paris happened recently, you know, I remember the, you know, pray for Paris hashtag going around. And it, it's almost like, are things in the world really worse than they ever were? Or in entrepreneurship, are there really that many more ideas that my ideas aren't unique or are we just more aware of all the ideas than ever before? And I, I think I can see it both sides, but I think there's a little bit of both. I think the bottom line is you, you have to, I think hustle honestly is just, it's just not valued enough. People try, they, they see the internet and they see technology as a way to kind of take shortcuts to growth. And I'm seeing more and more that the people that are successful in technology or even in a service business are the people that are just employing good old fashioned hustle. And whether that's like hustle, hustle on social media or hustle going to, to meetups and networking with people or hustle in that, like you're sending gifts to all of your past customers and sending them, you know, Christmas cards. And like, I think that those things that take work and are just good all like those are the things that are going to set you apart. And it, it's harder, I think, to set yourself apart right off the bat. But I think long term, nothing's changed. Business is still built on relationships, especially the kind of business that you want to create. I would say that there's this whole freelancer economy, 99designs, things like that, where it's democratizing work. And that's actually a negative, I would say, because you don't have these long-term relationships with a lot of these people you're building with. But I think in spite of that, everybody else that's doing work and building relationships with people, either in person or in depth or over time, there's just as much room and opportunity to set yourself apart by doing those extra things. But it is going to take money and it's going to take a little bit of work. It's going to take using your brain and talking to past customers and finding out you know, what's truly unique about yourself. There's just there's just so much that goes into it. But there is most definitely hope in today's marketplace, I, I think. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. Absolutely, Dane. I loved it. Seriously. This was episode 13, season two of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Music today provided by Triple Scoop Music, the leading music service for creative professionals. Find the perfect song for your next project at triplescoopmusic.com. Fastermind.co is home base for all things Converge. It's also where you can find exactly what you need to make real change happen. Like ever want to ditch your not-so-smart smartphone addiction? Knock that out this week. No kidding. Find out more at fastermind.co. Until then, I'm Dane Sanders. I cannot wait until next time.